Would you turn with me this morning again to the book of Acts? We've come to chapter 6, verse 8 and following, and uh, one of the longest, if not the longest, stories uh, in the book of Acts. And Stephen's sermon, which is most of chapter 7, is, is by far the longest speech in the book of Acts. Um, and as I've been studying this passage, I, I don't want to break this story up. I don't think there's a great way to, to do that very well. I think it's best for us to hear and, and consider the bulk of it together. Um, so I'll be reading and preaching on much longer passage than usual this morning. Uh, just by comparison, last week we looked at seven verses. This morning I'm going to read 62 verses. And uh, before you do the math, I'll assure you the sermon won't be nine times longer than, than last week. Um, so we're going to read through chapter 7, verse 54, uh, which doesn't finish the whole story of Stephen um, this morning, but does finish his sermon. Uh, then next week we'll come back to this again. We'll, we'll consider particularly next week the, um, what leads up to his sermon and then following his sermon, the reaction in his martyrdom. Uh, so we probably won't read the, the whole sermon again next week. We'll read the, the beginning and the end of his story. Um, uh, so as I read this, this longer passage, um, particularly as I read Stephen's sermon in chapter 7, uh, just if, if it's helpful for listening at all, the basic outline to Stephen's sermon is simply Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then the tabernacle. Okay, um, And it can sound like just a simple in- overview of Israel's history, things we all know, and, and in some sense it is that, uh, but I want you to think about why, why is Stephen reviewing these particular things, and how is he answering the charges against him uh, in this overview of, uh, of Israel's history? How is he maybe implicitly challenging uh, his, his persecutors as well? So, hear God's holy infallible word this morning, beginning with chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. 
But God spoke to this effect, and his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham began, became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them uh, being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. And the following day he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to, them, to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who is speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who is with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. 
but repudiated him in their hearts, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And then Stephen turns to his conclusion. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. And we'll end our reading of this story there for this morning. Just a couple of words about the the scene here before we jump into the outline that's in your bulletin. Uh, We begin with Stephen in in verse 8, back in chapter 6. And you recall that Stephen was one of the seven that we we read about last week. Uh, This complaint arose from certain widows, a minority of widows in the church in Jerusalem, that they were being overlooked. And so the apostles ordained these seven men uh, to particularly oversee the distribution of of aid for those in need in the church. Um, These seven were... the, the Widows were Hellenistic Jews. We talked about that. They were, they were raised in Greek culture away from Israel uh, with the Greek language. Uh, and all the seven men that were chosen to serve them have Greek names as well, um, Stephen included. Uh, we find Stephen uh, performing miracles, um, not just um, serving needs, uh, these needy widows and others in the church, but performing miracles and, and preaching, it seems, uh, the miracles always accompanied preaching. That was their, their purpose uh, in the early church. And uh, he's challenged by some. Verse 9, the challengers, um, eventually his persecutors, are identified as those of the synagogue of the freedmen. And that's a, a particular synagogue that was in Jerusalem with a particular history. This, this history isn't in the Bible, but it's a, it's a Hellenistic synagogue. It's those um, who had roots outside of Jerusalem, who spoke Greek and used a Greek Bible and so on. Uh, it, it comes from, in generations past, a, a bunch of Jews were um, uh, brought back to Rome by one of the Roman emperors and imprisoned there for a time. They were released. They, they established a colony in Rome uh, of Jews. 
Uh, and then they were kicked out of Rome. And so a bunch of them came back to Jerusalem and, and set up this, uh, this Greek-speaking synagogue. Anyways, that's, that's the history of it. Uh, it seems probable, maybe even likely, that this is a synagogue that Stephen is associated with. Again, he has a Greek name. Um, it seems likely that this is why these people know Stephen, why they're, why they're picking on Stephen, um, because he was from their synagogue. Uh, at least he's, he's from this, this minority of, of Greek Jews in Jerusalem. And so what transpires is they, they argue with him. Uh, verse 10 says they, they didn't get anywhere. Um, and so they, they stir up others uh, and, and drag him off ultimately to the Sanhedrin. Uh, the high priest, this is the Sanhedrin, and Caiaphas once again um, invites him to speak, and so he does. And we have this sermon, and then following his sermon, right, right where we let off, where we cut off our reading this morning, we'll come back to next week, um, what was something of a legal proceeding before the Sanhedrin devolves into mob violence uh, and, and Stephen is killed uh, and martyred. But again, we'll come back to that next week. So what is, what is at issue as, as Stephen is challenged here? What are the charges against him? Why are these Jews uh, so upset at and, and rejecting Stephen's preaching? So looking at number one on your outline, um, we have in verse 11 of chapter 6, uh, they secretly induce men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Uh, and then when he's before the council, verse 13 uh, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. We heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs that Moses handed down to us. So uh, basically their concern is that Stephen is against Moses, against the law that Moses wrote from God. He's against this place, which probably refers to the temple, maybe refers to the land of Israel more generally. Uh, and there, I think there's two things going on here that I want you to, to see um, in these accusations. W one is that they seem clearly to be twisting what Stephen and the apostles are actually teaching. Uh, and Luke tells us, in fact, they brought false witnesses. Um, again, in verse 10, where he says they, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't win an argument with him. This is probably when they were arguing based on the scriptures and on the basis of honesty. They, they couldn't couldn't win an argument with Stephen, and so they drummed up some twisted accusations. This is very similar to what happened with Jesus. You recall right before Jesus' more formal trials uh, in the Gospels, the, these groups kept coming to him one after the other in the temple with, with challenges, with traps, with questions. And uh, Luke concludes that section as Jesus answers brilliantly each one. No one else had anything else to say. And so ultimately they bring... Uh, witnesses with, with twisted accusations against Jesus. Um, and you see in verse 14, um, they're not actually repeating uh, very precisely what Jesus actually taught about the temple. It says that he will destroy this place. Um, Jesus a couple times talked about the temple. He's, he on one occasion, John chapter 2, said, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it. In three days. And so there he's talking about rebuilding what, what the Jews might do. And he's, he was talking about his body, uh, as he says there. Uh, and then later in the Gospels, on another occasion, he did talk to the disciples about the fact that the temple would be destroyed one day. He pr predicted that it would happen. Uh, but it wasn't as if Jesus was advocating for people to get together and destroy the temple or, or uh, preaching against the temple uh, in and of itself. 
So there's, there's this twisting of what they're saying. But secondly, the other thing that's going on is that these, these Jews really believe that Stephen and the apostles were trying to steer people away from true and biblical religion. They're saying, look, Moses told us this, and these people are saying it's going to change. They're trying to change our religion. Uh, they're speaking against the temple, uh, the temple of all, of all things. And the temple was the center of their religion. It was central to their identity uh, individually and nationally. The land of Israel, the, the same. And uh, in part, their, their impulse is, is good and that these are the, the law, the temple, the song. These are good things to defend. They're important things. The temple was God's idea. It was God's command. Uh, it was important and central and holy. Um, the land of Israel was God's gift. It was a blessing. It's an important piece uh, of the story of redemption uh, and the law likewise. But uh, what is probably going, what is the problem here is that the Jew, many of the Jews had lost sight of God himself among these things. Right? Their religion had become so focused on the temporal blessings that God gave, the land, the temple, and, and so on, to the point that they were devaluing God himself. That the, For many of the Jews, and we see this struggle throughout the Gospels, their identity had come to be wrapped up in their ethnic heritage, their connection to the land, their connection to the temple, the law as, as a a thing that they possessed, rather than seeing these things as means and tools of pointing to God and the relationship with God himself and his story and his purposes and his grace uh, over time. Um, they had so elevated these temporal blessings, blessings of God, that they, they lost sight of what God was doing through redemptive history. And, and chiefly, they lost sight of the kind of Savior that all these things pointed to. The temple and the sacrifices and so on. Uh, the fact that the temple and the land and the priesthood were not, not ends in and of themselves. They weren't to be permanent beyond the Savior that was to come. Um, they were not to be the identity of the Jews over against their identity in God himself. Uh, in the God of grace. And so their religion had become... Uh, somewhat outward and routine and, and cultural and national. And we'll come back in the third point to talk a bit about how uh, those sorts of things can happen to us in, in some different ways, but parallel ways. Uh, so these are the charges against Stephen and the, the problem between him and these fellow Jews. And so he uh, preaches this sermon of chapter 7 uh, that we'll turn to. And in addition to answering the charges... He's speaking to these root problems among many of the Jews, this, this uh, outward, um, outward religion as, as it had become. So let's look secondly at, at Stephen's sermon. Obviously, we're going to, uh, it'll be a, a brief sort of overview of what is uh, a long, in terms of what the Bible usually records of speeches, a very long uh, speech here. Um, and in many ways, again, it is a, a basic overview of, of Israel's history. Uh, things that are familiar probably to us certainly were to the Jews. Um, and, and, but I want us to look at a few themes that Stephen is highlighting to make his defense uh, and to make, make his offense as well, to make a challenge uh, to these fellow Jews. Again, the outline is simple. It's Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and the tabernacle. And, and so I want to uh, sweep through that a couple times, a few times, looking at a few themes that Stephen 
uh, seems to be bringing out. One theme is, is Stephen simply highlighting God himself as central to Israel's story, uh, to the story of redemption, to their identity. This, this is God's story. Uh, this is God's plan. Again, I think that's one of the things that uh, these Jews had lost sight of, and that was, that was why they were missing and rejecting the gospel of Christ. Uh, Stephen does this right from the beginning, verse 2, when he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now, the Jews loved to identify with Abraham and hold him up. Um, but Stephen makes clear it was, it was God's revelation to Abraham. And God and his glory are central to the Abraham story. Um, God condescended to Abraham. That's, that's what made Abraham what he was. And then Abraham's story is one of being responsive to God's leading, uh, wherever, that, wherever that led, um, which again is what many of the Jews are not doing. Likewise with Joseph, it's not a story of, uh, of Joseph's greatness that Stephen tells so much as of God's. Again, it's a story of God. Uh, verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh. It's, it's a story of God's plan, God's purposes being worked out. And, and Joseph also was responsive to that, um, even though it meant drastic, unexpected changes to his life as well. Uh, Moses, again, uh, God is central and his direction is central. Uh, we'll come back to Moses. Likewise with the temple and the tabernacle, verse 44 uh, highlights that the, the tabernacle and the temple were built exactly according to God's plan. Uh, they, they weren't just a, a, a Jewish thing, a cultural and national identity thing. It was a God thing, right? It was for his purposes and his plan. Um, so that's one theme, the centrality of God in Israel's history. Another theme, probably the main theme that Stephen is, is implying in the way he tells this story is Israel's repeated history of rejecting God and his messengers. Um, that's, that's probably the main story that he's telling um, and of course, Stephen is applying, as we'll come to in the end, that his hearers are doing the same thing. They're just following this same pattern of rejecting God's messengers and God himself and, and the grand story. So we come to Joseph's story. Uh, Stephen tells the story of Joseph. God chose Joseph for, for special uh, service to him. And what happened? All of his brothers, all of the patriarchs, in, his, in, in other words, rejected Joseph. They were jealous of him, um, and, and the jealousy is in verse 9 is probably another parallel Stephen is trying to highlight uh, that relates to his day, right? It was, it was jealousy on, part, on the part of the Jewish leadership that led to uh, arresting and killing Jesus. It was jealousy that led uh, in previous chapters here in Acts to arresting and, and beating the apostles, uh, and now to what's happening to Stephen as well. Uh, the story of Moses is the same over and over again. Uh, of, of rejection, um, despite how Moses is, is held up generally through Israel's history. But from the very beginning of Moses' story, and, and Stephen starts with this, this story of Moses breaking up a fight between an Egyptian and a Hebrew, um, that really long before Moses' ministry really began. Uh, in verse 25, it says that Moses supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. 
Right? That's, that's still the problem. Verse 27 um, gives an exact quote from the next day. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Isn't, isn't that the basic attitude, uh, wasn't it, towards Jesus? Who made you a ruler and a judge? And of course, the answer is, well, God did. This was his plan um, all along. And so God, uh, verse 36, did miracles through Moses, just like he did through Jesus, uh, to authenticate his, his authority and his message. Verse 38, he spoke through Moses as a prophet, uh, again, as he did through Jesus, through the apostles. But what was the result? Verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their hearts, and, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Uh, they did their own thing. They made made religion what they wanted it to be. Um, and, and he goes on to give the, the example of the golden calf as a, a chief example of that. And of course, Stephen could have gone on for hours with this theme about Israel turning away from God's prophets and, and kings and others who were anointed by God. Um, but his audience knows the story and, and are probably getting the idea at this point already. Uh, and then a final, more subtle theme here has to do with the land and the temple. Uh, that these were not, not ultimate things in and of themselves. They were, they were temporary tools in God's plan. Um, we go all the way back to the beginning of Stephen's story with Abraham. Abraham was not called and, and was not faithful to the Lord uh, in the land of Israel. Right? This happened all over uh, the known world there. Um, not in the promised land. The Israelites were called and blessed and God's people not in Israel. In Egypt first. Uh, Moses himself uh, never set foot in the promised land. Uh, and, and Stephen makes this point maybe most powerfully about Abraham in verse 5, uh, where it says he gave him no inheritance in it, in the promised land, not even a foot of ground. And then he goes on to say he, he didn't even have the promised child yet. Um, the point is, it, it wasn't about the land, ultimately. The land, the promised land was a blessing, but it was temporal. It was, it was temporary. It was one thing that pointed to something better. And the fact that Stephen and the apostles are preaching now that God is doing something bigger and better through Jesus should not be a surprise to the Jews at all. Uh, this, this is where all of this was pointing. They, they shouldn't be clinging to these these temporary, non-ultimate things uh, that's causing them to miss the Savior and miss the plan of God uh, and has all along. Um, and then uh, Stephen closes this, this overview portion of his sermon by making this point that the Jews have elevated the temple as, as important and holy and crucial as it was. They've, they've, in a sense, elevated it to a significance that it was never meant to have. Um, the temple is not the ultimate and permanent dwelling of God. It, it, it importantly symbolized that. It was a symbol of God living with his people. But it's not actually, literally, God's house. Uh, God doesn't literally, he's not literally contained there. And, and Stephen quotes uh, Isaiah there in verse 49. Heaven is my throne, earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? It, it's not possible for God literally and ultimately uh, to live in a, a house built by humans. The whole world is God's footstool, as it says there. And his plan has always been, as the, the whole Old Testament makes clear, has always been to make the whole world uh, his household and his kingdom uh, again. Uh, it was never to ultimately and always be focused simply on Jerusalem. 
uh, and on, on Israel. So that's, that's the meat of Stephen's sermon. And, and to this point, uh, Stephen goes through that overview that the Sanhedrin and the crowd who's evidently listening in might have some inclination as to where Stephen's going with this, but they're waiting to see what he's going to say, how he's going to make it explicit. Uh, and then he very much does. And so let's look thirdly and finally at, at Stephen's application, beginning in verse 51. Stephen has, has implicitly answered the charges against him. He's turned to the scriptures to do that. He's demonstrated he has great respect for Moses and, and for the temple and for God's plan and for Abraham and all of this. But then he leaves no doubt as to his point and his challenge for his persecutors. And I want, to hear, I want you to hear what he says again, verses 51 to 53. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. These are, are heavy charges he levels suddenly. He, he's saying, you are simply carrying on this sad pattern uh, of resisting and rejecting what God is doing. And rejecting God's messengers. He says, you're stiff-necked, you're, you're stubborn, you're stuck in your own ways, your own version of religion. Resisting God's actual plan and his correction. He describes them as uncircumcised in heart and ears. In, in other words, you, you are those who are literally circumcised. You, you have this sign of God's promise to you, and yet you're unresponsive to that same God. Uh, you're, you're acting like pagans, is what he's saying. Uh, God's given himself to you in, in unmeasurable and unconditional grace, and you're just going through the motions of religion. You're just going through the motions that, that Moses handed down. And, and you're culturally, outwardly the people of God, but not really. Not in relationship, not in heart. In verse 53, again, you, you don't actually obey the very law that you, you are so proud to claim to have. Uh, and in some outward sense, they do. right? But Jesus, Jesus made this same point repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. He particularly looked at the um, command against adultery and the command against murder and the way that these were sort of outwardly followed, but Jesus made clear it's, it, it, it ultimately is a call to your hearts. Right? It's to reflect the love of God and seeking his holiness and, and repentance and love for others is what the law is. One way to summarize Stephen's challenge here is he's saying you have all the trappings of religion, but it's meaningless. It's not enough. Even he's saying having and knowing the word of God is not enough. It's not the same as having salvation, as having God himself. Uh, last week in, in worship, I read from Isaiah chapter 1, the first part of our worship, where God challenged Israel in, in, in similar terms. He said, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. In other words, you're all just going through the motions. You're, you're busy carrying out the worship of God in the temple, but it's meaningless. You're not giving me your heart. 
You're, you're doing all these sacrifices that are designed to teach you of your sin and your need for grace and my, my incredible gift of grace and the Savior to come, and you're missing all of that. Right? And he says, they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them, there in Isaiah 1. Uh, Malachi, in, in, in the time of Malachi, God challenged Israel in a similar way. He's, he says, I'm paraphrasing, the temple is so busy, everything's going on like normal, but God says you might as well shut the doors of the temple. It's all a waste. You're not really worshiping me. And so Stephen is confronting, in large part, what is, is dead, routine, presumptive religion among the Jews. And as we begin to think about how this might apply to us and what we ought to learn from this passage, it's certainly true that that's, that's alive and well today, to put it in sort of an oxymoronic way. Dead, presumptive religion is alive and well, as it always has been among, among sinners. Uh, I did some door-to-door evangelism in Pennsylvania, uh, where I'm from, a number of times years ago, and... We would routinely, with in, in, in engaging in conversation with people, pose the two well-known evangelism explosion questions. The first is, if you died today, would you expect to go to heaven tonight? And the follow-up is essentially, why? You know, if God challenged you, why, why should I let you in? Um, what would be your reason? Uh, and very often, if, if the answer wasn't a, you know, well, I've tried to be a good person, kind of an answer, which, which was very common, uh, we would get the answer something like, oh, I'm, I'm a member at the Baptist church down the street. Right? Oh, my dad's been a deacon at such and such a church forever. Uh, or, or most often, given where I was, it was, oh, I've been a Catholic all my life. Or I was baptized. Or I attend Mass sometimes. And a major application of what Stephen is preaching is that an association with the church or regular attendance in the church, or even a, a well-marked-up and well-worn Bible, means nothing by itself. How many times have I heard testimony of, of someone who's about their, their coming to faith in Christ, they say, I grew up in the church, I never heard the gospel. Right? It was never preached. It reflects churches that are moralistic social clubs. Right? They're teaching people to be nice, to do charitable things but failing and bringing people to an, into an encounter with a holy and gracious and just and saving God who's judge of the earth and, and who rescues from eternal punishment and hell those who repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ and give their lives to him. How many times have I also heard testimony, and, and, and maybe some of us have testimonies like these, but... I grew up in the church that did preach the gospel, right? that did evidence a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet I was unresponsive. Right? I was just going through the motions. I was going along with my parents, or just, it was just a routine cultural community thing. And, and so I'm compelled this morning by the scriptures not to presume that everyone here really knows Jesus in a saving way this morning. I hope you do. Our, our, our men's study a couple weeks ago in studying through the parables, we studied the parable of the great feast, where Jesus in that makes a, 
the point of the Pharisees, basically, that God's salvation is like a great banquet that's been laid out for you. You've been invited to it. But Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you think you're already there. You think you have a place at the table because of your birth, because you're a good Jew. You know your Bible. You go through the right motions. You go to synagogue every week. But you've never actually come to the feast, Jesus says. You might miss it. Jesus tells parables elsewhere about those at Judgment Day who find themselves, to their shock, uh, shut out of the kingdom of God at the last day. And and they they plead all kinds of associations with Jesus. Jesus, we went to church. I, I taught Sunday school. I was a deacon. And Jesus says, go away. I don't know you. And so I want to press on you this morning to reflect, could that be you? You know, coming... Coming to church every week, for example, is a wonderful thing. Public worship is, is our greatest and highest privilege and duty in, in, in real sense. But it's not enough. It doesn't save you. Uh, having a Bible and knowing your Bible very well is wonderful and crucial, but it's not enough by itself. It doesn't save you. The question really is not, do you have these things? Uh, do you have these blessings, these benefits? But do you have the Savior? So I want to challenge you to examine yourself this morning. I want to challenge parents in what are you exemplifying and passing on to your children? Is it a nice religious lifestyle and routine? Or is it vibrant daily heart relationship with Jesus as your Savior and your life? With a Savior who died in your place on the cross to pay for your sins. And raised again to life. If it's not that, then you're still in your sins. You're under the judgment of God. You're heading for eternal punishment that your sins deserve. They're they're nothing less, yours and mine, than cosmic treason against the God who created you. If you don't know that relationship with God, then come to Jesus. Confess your sins, your need for his grace. And give him your life. Uh, he is your Lord and your Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word again this morning in the book of Acts. <clears throat> thank you for the example of Stephen and the way that you used him and spoke through him boldly and courageously. And we, we anticipate uh, continuing this, this story and, and seeing how you continue to use him even through death uh, as we look at this next week. Uh, But we pray, Lord, that we would be responsive to your word, uh, that we would know true and uh, heartfelt, heart-level relationship with you, that we would not uh, be merely going through the motions, uh, that we would not be stuck in a cultural or routine or presumptive religion, uh, but that ours would be a, a relationship with you. We pray that that would be what we are continually about here at our church that it be true of each individual here this morning. Uh, And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.